A text this morning that we'll be looking at is John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 889. Before reading God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. My Father, we thank You for this day in which we as your called out people might gather to hear from your eternal word of truth. As we look to these pages of Scripture, may we see before us the merciful and gracious Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom alone is found life in his name. Would you work your sovereign grace in the hearts of all who are here this day. In the name of Christ and for his sake we pray. Amen. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And one of the major themes throughout John's Gospel is the hope that Christ Jesus brings into this world of darkness. In the beginning of creation, there was light and there was life. But in our rebellion against our Creator, the world is now filled with darkness and with death. But with the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have one who has come into this world to drive out the darkness of this world. We have one who has overcome that greatest enemy of all, death itself. What we learn from this passage of John chapter 4 is that Jesus alone is able to give life. Jesus alone is able to repair and restore that which is most significantly broken in this world. Jesus is the Lord of glory, filled with compassion, with grace, with mercy, and forgiveness. We learn all of that from these few short verses in John chapter 4. Now, there are many amazing things that Jesus does throughout his earthly ministry. Many amazing things that he has done already in John's gospel prior to this event. Turning the water to wine back in chapter 2. Cleansing the temple in Jerusalem telling both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman at the well that life is found in him alone. But there is nothing more dramatic 
than the power and the ability of Jesus to restore life. There is nothing more amazing than the authority that Jesus possesses over life itself. All of us undoubtedly have experienced the death of a loved one, either in a very sudden or shocking manner, or perhaps at the bedside of one who suffers and gradually slips away. And it's in such moments as these that we are struck with our own weakness and our utter inability to reverse that darkness of death. You might have the most skilled physicians in the world at your disposal. They might be able to pinpoint the exact source of disease and deterioration. But nobody can do what Jesus alone can do in bringing life to those who are dying. Bringing life here to this small boy who was on the verge of death. Now wouldn't it just stand to reason that someone who has such power over life would be worshipped by everyone? As amazing as Jesus is, filled with power and mercy, he is the most polarizing person in human history. He's the most revered, the most worshipped, and yet the most hated and the most misunderstood Not because he wasn't clear, but perhaps because he was too clear. He claims to be equal with the Father, claiming divinity upon himself. He receives worship. He says that he is the one who is to be believed upon, that he is to be trusted, that he is the Savior of the world, that he himself is life and light, a substitute for lost sinners. As you read through John's gospel, Jesus could not be any clearer as to his own identity and what response that identity demands. And yet many refuse to believe and remain hardened, blind in their sin because they love the darkness rather than the light of the world. Now, part of the reason why Jesus is so polarizing can be seen in the two main facets to Jesus' ministry, his miraculous signs and his teaching. People are drawn to his miracles, captivated by his amazing power and ability. And yet it seems as though as soon as he opens his mouth and begins to teach, making such radical claims of divinity and radical claims for those who would follow him, that the masses leave. R.T. France says, whatever Jesus was, he was not ordinary. He provoked extreme reactions, whether of acceptance or of rejection. One moment they were all on his side, the next they were trying to lynch him. And this division over the person of Jesus is not merely some modern phenomenon. It's not as though it's simply our contemporary methods of historical studies that have created confusion and division over the person of Jesus. Even those who encountered Jesus firsthand were divided over what to make of him because of the radical claims that he made and the decisive response that he demands. And that's our first point this morning that we see from our text. What people think of Jesus. We see these extremes in verses 43 through 45 that some reject him while others welcome him. Now earlier in chapter 4, you might recall Jesus has this conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. He tells her all that she ever did, and she responds by putting her faith in Jesus. She then longs to bear witness to Jesus and goes into the surrounding town to tell all who can hear her voice to come and listen to this one who knows everything about her. 
And as a result of her witness, we read here in verse 43 that Jesus determines to spend two more days among the Samaritans. They long for him to be in their midst. And many, we read from the text, put their faith in him. And you might remember that the Samaritans were a despised people group, viewed by the Jews as racial and religious half-breeds, seen as those who were outside of the bounds of the covenant community. And yet here they are in John chapter 4, putting their faith in Jesus. They are the outcasts. They are the marginalized. They are the detested. And yet they have faith in Jesus. And the welcome by the Samaritan people is evidence of the amazing grace of Jesus that is extended to all. Well, at the same time, it's an indictment of those from Jesus' own country, those from Judea who should have believed in him. We read this parenthetical comment in verse 44. John says that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. This particular proverb in verse 44 shows up in the other Gospels as condemnation for those who knew Jesus prior to the start of his public ministry and yet rejected him. If you grew up with Jesus, if you knew his character, it should be no surprise when he begins his public ministry. And yet they are the ones who revile him. Who does he think he is? He is the son of a carpenter. And so we see Jesus welcomed by the Samaritans. He spends time in Galilee. Yet when he is in Judea, he is met with great resistance. They should have believed because they had the words of the prophets. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those words. They should have believed because they had the privilege of knowing Jesus before he began his public ministry. And yet they reject him. And so Jesus has this effect upon people, this radical response, either belief and worship or skepticism and hatred. There really is no third option. Now, there might be someone who comes to Jesus out of sort of an initial sense of curiosity, but they don't remain as a neutral spectator. Very quickly, Jesus presses them to get off the fence. We'll see that later in verse 48. there really is no place to be a neutral spectator when Jesus is in the vicinity. For some, again, there is outright rejection, but the Galileans welcome him. Someone has put it like this. It is not mere ignorance that hinders men, but that of their own accord they search after grounds of offense to prevent them from following the path to which God invites You see, the gospel is offered freely. It is grace that is available for all. And yet, how many simply create grounds of offense to keep Jesus at arm's length? How many make him to be something other than who he truly is in order to avoid really wrestling with the claims that he made? We see that in the Pharisees, and we see that in the teachers of the law, and certainly we see that in our own time. Well, what does this mean for us? Really, the question that everyone must reckon with is this. Who is Jesus and what should I do with him? The Bible teaches that your eternal destiny hinges 
upon your understanding of who Jesus is and the way in which you respond to him. Just listen to a few things that Jesus says about himself. Whoever is not with me is against me. Luke eleven twenty three. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke nine twenty three. <clears throat> if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Luke fourteen thirty three. You see, it's these radical claims of absolute worship and radical self-sacrifice that are utterly offensive to those whose hearts are still ruled by their own pride and their own self-sufficiency. But it's these radical claims that bring comfort to those who have found refuge in Jesus. There is no place for neutrality. There is no place to remain simply as a spectator. There is no place simply to settle for familiarity with Jesus. And for those who have grown up in the church, there can be this danger of familiarity. We hear these radical claims of Jesus quite frequently, and perhaps we fail to really contemplate what it is that Jesus is demanding from those of us who follow him. We hear of his grace week after week, and we can certainly fail to marvel at his grace. And that can gradually turn into a form of contempt, like the ones here that Jesus has very harsh words for. And so may we not come to Jesus with simple curiosity. May we not just marvel at him as some sort of wonder worker of miraculous things. May we not become complacent. Thanks, Bruce. But may we take the time to meditate upon his grace and his love for us. Now, as we go on in our text this morning, we see some of this initial curiosity with this official who comes to Jesus and Jesus' response to press him toward belief. And that's our second point this morning, is Jesus' interaction with the official. And notice how this interaction between Jesus and the official plays itself out. As we follow the dialogue, pay attention to the grace and the mercy of Jesus extended toward this man. First, the official comes to Jesus out of a desperation for the sake of his son. We don't know what sort of official this man is. Most likely, he is one who was in the court of Herod Antipas, who is ruler of this region of Galilee. As an official, he would be a man of important influence. Perhaps he was a Gentile, but not necessarily He's a man of authority and no doubt a man of some means. I think it's safe to assume that this is a man who is accustomed to being in charge, giving orders and expecting that those orders be fulfilled. But his own weakness is exposed as his dear boy lays gravely ill to the point of death. No matter the level of power or influence and status that one might possess in this world, When faced with the reality of death, we are all the same, weak, frail, helpless against it. What good is it, Jesus says elsewhere, to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Now, we don't know how long this official's boy has been ill. We don't know what type of illness it was, but as an official who, again, had influence and no doubt means to pay, 
Certainly he had physicians come already to diagnose his condition. And their diagnosis was not good. The life of his boy is ebbing away. He is fading quickly. And as any father would be, he is desperate for help. And he hears that Jesus is in the area. Perhaps he heard previously of Jesus' first miraculous sign, the turning of water into wine at Canaan, Galilee. Maybe he has heard of other amazing things that Jesus has done in his earthly ministry. And he has this small glimmer of hope that perhaps this one who has such power can help him. Jesus, he hears, has come nearby in his return to Cana, some 20 miles away from where the official lives in Capernaum. But he is close enough that perhaps, the man reasons to himself, perhaps I can convince him to come here and to heal my son. And so he rushes to Jesus. And notice that we don't read of the exact words of Jesus, or of the man to Jesus in verse 47, but as John narrates for us, he indicates that there is an earnest plea for the sake of his boy to come to his home and to heal him, for he is about to die. And second, notice in response to this desperate plea, Jesus' reply in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, what are we to make of the words of Jesus here? This is certainly not a politically correct way for him to speak, is it? It is a distraught father. It might seem at first as though this is a callous reply to a man who is desperate for the sake of his son. His child could die at any moment. No doubt this official has rushed as fast as he can to get from his home to Cana in order to find Jesus. Is Jesus crushing that last glimmer of hope that the man has left? Now, if you have open before you your southern ESV Bibles, you know that it reads here, y'all. <laughs> when the official you see comes to Jesus pleading for his sake, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to address the motives, not only of the official, but of those who were there as well observing this event. Unless you, plural, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Even though some in Galilee have put their faith in Jesus, many others continue to think of Jesus as just a worker of miracles, a conjurer of tricks, someone who does amazing things to simply pique our curiosity. And this is part of the reason why Jesus' fame spread so quickly in the performance of these amazing wonders. And undoubtedly, this is the reason why the official comes to Jesus in the first place. He offers hope to his son. The man is interested in the healing power of Jesus, but is not yet interested in putting his faith in Jesus. And isn't this why some come to Jesus today? Because of the benefits that they think he offers without really putting their faith in him. Some might come to the church because of particular needs that they need met. Some might come longing for friendships. Some might come hoping to make business connections. Perhaps learning greater leadership traits that they can take with them in order to influence others. Coming to Jesus because of the benefits that he offers rather than coming to him simply because of who he is. And so Jesus' statement to the crowd and to the official is meant to expose their motives. 
And then next we see the official's response to Jesus. Notice that he heeds the rebuke of Jesus. He doesn't take offense and leave, but he takes these words of Jesus to heart. I think he acknowledges that, yes, he has, in fact, come to Jesus for the wrong reason, that he has come because of some benefit that he wants. And then he responds in verse 49 with the beginning seeds of faith. Sir, come down before my child dies. He's used to telling people what to do, but instead he responds to Jesus with a tone of respect and humility and reverence by calling him sir. His pride is laid aside. He has no sense of entitlement, but has humbled himself. And notice in this statement to Jesus that there is no plea for healing. In verse 47, his plea was to heal the boy. In verse 49, his plea is simply for Jesus. And this is subtle, but Sinclair Ferguson says, perhaps this change from the initial request of healing in verse 47 to this one in verse 49 is significant. At first, he wants his son to be made better, but then the plea changes. There is no reference to the son's illness, but Jesus, I want my son to have you before he dies. And really, isn't this the most important and the most significant thing in all of life? If you have Jesus before you die, this is all you need. You see, the official is no longer focused upon the sign and the wonder itself and what Jesus might do for him. But the focus is now rightly upon the person of Jesus, my need for Jesus, my son's need for Jesus. Even if he dies, I want him to have Jesus. Even if he dies, he must have Jesus. You see, the greatest expression of faith is a longing to have Jesus above all else. As a parent, the greatest expression of faith is the longing for your child to know Jesus, to love Jesus. To have Jesus above all else. To bring your son or daughter to him. He is the only hope for lost sinners. There are so many other things that the world tells us are more important for our children. Academic success. Athletic achievements. The development of leadership skills. Their own personal happiness. Their own love and affection toward me as a parent and more. And perhaps we as parents have been guilty of the wrong priorities in our own home. What better time really than this at the start of this new calendar year than to grow in a passionate zeal for the Lord Jesus? There is no greater privilege, there is no higher calling than to bring your children to Jesus. Everything else in life is secondary to this primary pursuit. Again, Ferguson says... How many times have you said to yourself, yes, I want Jesus, but I want more too for myself, for my children? But no matter what else it is in the world, it is of secondary importance that my child has Jesus is the most important thing. And then in response to the man's plea, we see the gracious and merciful act of Jesus in verse 50. Go, your son will live. It's a response of comfort, and yet it's a response that demands faith. 
It's a response that is better than the man could have imagined. Jesus doesn't travel with the man the 20 miles back to Capernaum while his son continues to suffer in agony. But rather, Jesus heals the boy from great distance. And we find out later from the narrative that the healing begins immediately. Jesus doesn't even need to be present in order to heal the boy. He simply speaks, and it comes to be. It's reminiscent of the words of our Creator in Genesis chapter 1. Or what Paul says in Colossians 1, that all things were created by the Son of God, and that all things hold together in Him, that He is the preeminent one over all of creation. Do you see the power of Jesus? Do you see the authority of Jesus? Do you see His tender care? What comfort to know that we belong to such a loving and powerful Lord. What comfort to know that we hear, that we have one who hears our prayers and who answers them. John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, says the Lord answers our prayers far beyond what we might imagine or deserve. His infinite nature and love for his own determines what he brings about in our lives. And yet this gracious and merciful response of Jesus demands faith. The official must believe the words of Jesus. He has given no immediate sign to indicate that his son will be healed, but he must believe the words of Jesus. And in fact, the words of Jesus are enough for him as he departs believing in the truth of what Jesus has spoke to him. There is something about the way in which Jesus speaks to him, the content of what he says that brings this man comfort and brings him assurance. God is using this adversity in the man's life to humble him and to enable him to see that there is only one thing that matters, faith in Jesus. And that brings us to our third point this morning, and that is the effects of faith. The effects of faith or the evidence of faith in man's life. Now the first evidence that we have of the man's faith is that there is a resting upon the word of Jesus. He must believe the words of Jesus. He no longer sees him as simply a wonder worker, but as one who speaks with divine authority. And he responds in faith, believing the words as he departs. Now the official, notice he does not meet his servants on the road until the next day. We see that in verse 52, which indicates to us that the man didn't return immediately on his way home. The seventh hour here is 1 p.m., which would have been plenty of time for the man to return back to Capernaum. But you see, there is such confidence in the words of Jesus that he doesn't need to rush home. He believes, and he rests in his Savior. Evidence of his faith is resting in the word of Jesus. And evidence of his faith is found also in this, that life is found in his name restoration of life. Three times in the narrative we are told that the boy lives. Verse 48. Rather, verse 50, Jesus says, go, your son will live. Verse 51. As the servants come to the man, it is the same word used in verse 50. Your son lives. And again, in verse 53. 
As the man reflects upon the words of Christ and sees the healing of his boy, he recalls that Jesus spoke these words, your son will live. John here, you see, does not want the reader to miss the emphasis upon life that Jesus brings. Life is found in him alone. And evidence of this faith, you see, is life restored. Evidence is seen in that life comes not only to the boy, but life comes to the official as well. And we see evidence of the man's faith in his heartfelt, we could say maturing faith. In verse 50, we see that he immediately believes the word of Jesus and he goes on his way. And when he returns to his home the next day, as he meets his servants along the way, he is amazed at the boy's recovery. And they confirm the fact that he has been healed. And we read in verse 53 that the man believes. And so does he believe in verse 50 or does he believe in verse 53? Well, I think it's simply initial faith expressed in verse 50 and a faith that grows as it matures in verse 53. A pastor I heard recently said it like this, that faith grows strong by the experience of grace. Every time we trust in Jesus, our faith grows and our faith matures. As we learn to draw upon the promises that God makes to us in his word, our faith grows, enabling us to trust in him more as we look to those promises, which grows our faith even further. We can live according to the promises that God makes to us in his word. We can rest upon such promises. Promises that he makes to sinners for forgiveness. Promises that he makes to comfort us in the midst of trial. Promises that he makes to work persevering grace in our lives. Promises that he makes to finish the work that he has begun in us. The more we learn to trust in such promises, the more we see our faith grow and mature. Really, the Christian life is a life of ongoing belief and rest in the promises of God. And so the evidence of faith is belief in the words of Jesus, life that's found in his name alone, heartfelt belief, and evidence of the man's faith is also seen in his witness bearing. We see that in verse 53, that the faith of the father is made evident to his household. It is a resting faith. It is a trusting faith. It is, we could say, a contagious faith. Just as the Samaritan woman at the well longed to bring people from her town to hear Jesus, so now we see the entire household believes as the official testifies to his Savior. There is something that has happened to me that is so great that I must tell others. His life is transformed as he longs for those whom he loves to come to Jesus. So what is the calling of this text upon you and me? Well, the calling of this text is to place your faith in Christ and to rest in Him. You see, we are great at presuming that we know what our greatest need is. Your greatest need is not to experience healing from some sort of illness. Your greatest need is not to have a comfortable and carefree life. It's not any form of stability or health that we might envision. But rather, our greatest need 
is to have the sin of our hearts exposed, that we would see our need for Christ Jesus and the only hope of forgiveness that is found in him. You might remember that John calls miracles signs. We saw that in chapter 2 when Jesus turned the water to wine. We see it here in verse 54. This is the second sign that Jesus performed in Galilee. And signs are things that are meant to point beyond themselves to the identity of Jesus as the eternal Son of God. They are meant to point to the forgiveness that is found in Him alone. You see, initially the man is fixated upon the sign alone. He just wants the healing of his son, and that is all that he cares about. But when he looks beyond the sign to Jesus himself and puts faith in him, he finds something that is much truer and lasting. And this sign is meant to press each of us as well. Do you see your greatest of needs to reckon with the sin in your own heart? and to rest upon the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus. And don't simply marvel from a distance, but bow in humility and worship before Him. And don't just look to the benefits that you think might be yours, but come to Jesus for who He is. And we live in a very skeptical age in which unbelief is seen as something that's commendable, something admirable, as though it's something that we ought to pride ourselves on, that we have some sort of intellectual objection to the Christian faith. And if that happens to be you or someone that you know, you must realize that you are simply creating grounds of offense in order to keep Jesus away. And even in that unbelief, that intellectual unbelief is sinful rebellion against him. He calls you, you see, to lay aside your pride, to believe in his words, that life is found in him alone. Rest in his words of authority and truth. And the other calling of this text, I believe, is to live out your faith in Christ Jesus. Is there a longing on your part to bring others to Jesus? Is your faith an attractive faith, a contagious faith? A resting faith, a faith that is evidence to a world that is lost in darkness. Is there a longing to bring those closest to you, to Jesus? Don't be deluded by thinking that you know what is best for your life. His infinite nature means he knows what is best. His infinite love means he will bring about that which is best. His limitless grace means there is life sufficient for us all. We belong to a Savior who knows us and who loves us. If you are in Christ Jesus, you belong to a tender Father who cares for you, who rules over all, who determines all within your life. You can trust Him. You can rest in Him. You can believe Him. You can confess that Jesus is Lord over all.